This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 160. I hope you're enjoying our beautiful new tune by Australian independent artist Melanie Horsnell. The song is called Birds uh, from 2005 and you can download her music so you don't need to be in Australia to buy a CD or anything. I have all the details in the show notes or you can head to melaniehorsnell.com. Uh, and uh, and go check out her music yourself. Now, we have a fantastic show today. I love it when I get to bring back an expert that kind of left everybody hanging with all the truth bombs from the first time they run the show. It is, of course... Uh, Dr. Jason Horolak, and he is Australia's premier probiotic researcher and expert. He holds a first class in honours degree, PhD degrees in the areas of gastrointestinal microbiota, irritable bowel syndrome, and the clinical application of pre and probiotics. He has had his research cited over 900 times. So this ain't no, no person who's just kind of come in with a uh, a two-year diploma to kind of tell us a few things. This is the foremost expert on the microbiome. And today we're not just talking about the gut microbiome, but we're also talking about uh, nasal microbiome and in more detail, the vaginal microbiome. What I learnt in today's conversation really blew my mind, also kind of frustrated me as to why testing on vaginal microbiome health is not more readily available for women, especially when you know that it can impact fertility and it can impact cervical cancer and HIV. Yes, you did hear that right. So I'm going to let you listen to today's show to learn more about that and how that works based on the research that uh, Jason shares with us today. But my mind was absolutely blown. And I think we need to be starting to ask practitioners more for this testing so that they sound the alarm with testing providers uh, to make it more readily available where you don't have to go and ship off sampling to other continents just to get a result. If you live in Australia, for example, right now, you have to ship off your test to America to find out whether you have uh, vaginal microbiome dysbiosis or not. Now, that's awesome that you can actually get this test done in America. And Jason also talks about a UK option that's just become available. But it, I think it's up to us to champion a need for this at the grassroots, especially if you have uh, uh, HPV in your family or fertility issues. You should be able to get this test. And I think we can all champion that collectively. Before I hook into the conversation that I have with Jason, uh, I wanted to tell you that we have two show sponsors this month. I feel extra lucky. Block Blue Light is the first one I just want to quickly tell you about. And I am wearing my Block Blue Light day glasses right now. They are a premium supplier of all things blue light blocking. So they don't just do the funky new kind of popular fashionable side of things. But these guys have been specialists in blocking out blue light 
for years. And they provide a range of glasses, both for the day um, computer ones that I'm wearing right now. I'll pop a photo on Instagram for you guys this week. Uh, and, but also the uh, nighttime ones that fully block out blue light after dark and the beautiful amber bulbs that we have on in our homes, uh, in our homes, sorry, <laughs> I don't have multiple homes, uh, in the evenings. So just really fantastic way of reducing blue light uh, in the atmosphere around your home after dark. Uh, you can also go super hardcore and use their red ones. They've got red torch bulbs as well. Uh, so they're really providing multiple um, solutions. And they actually also have um, on their screen time daytime glasses, um, which are basically designed for people who spend a significant amount of time on screens. They filter out 50% of blue light to alleviate digital eye strain, sore eyes, tiredness, headaches, migraines, blurred vision, uh, and bright LED or fluorescent lighting in the workplace, uh, which, oh gosh, when I worked in an office, that really, really used to drain me. I uh, wish I'd had these back then, but I don't think I would have stayed still. It was definitely meant to start low-tox life. Uh, and um, they actually even have a fit-over version for people who wear reading or prescription glasses. So your special offer is that you have 10% of all orders with the code LOWTOXLIFE. And where you can go, the URL is bit.ly, so B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash block underscore blue underscore light. You've also got that if you're on the run right now in the show notes to just click through and your code is LOWTOXLIFE for 10% off. I also have a special offer for you from one of my favorite kitchen tools, Solid Techniques. A lot of you remember that I did a joint uh, product creation offer with Solid Techniques last year. We did the beautiful, um, super, super solid, nickel-free stainless oven baking trays. Uh, and uh, lots of people have raved about those. They're fantastic as a cookie sheet, pizza sheet. Uh, I even roast uh, veggies on them, especially if you're just brushing things with olive oil. You don't need to worry about it dripping off the sides. Um, it's literally indestructible and going to last generations and generations. And I'm very excited to let you know that they have an offer for a free 22 centimeter Oz Iron Sauteurs valued at $119.95 with all orders over $249. So if you get yourself a Solid Technics piece, you'll get a bonus piece in uh, this month's special offer. So you have to use the coupon LOWTOX at the checkout uh, and each order using the coupon code will also go into the draw to win the LOWTOX approved Noni baking tray valued at $299. So, wow, that's a big offer, right? Uh, good luck to everybody who enters that competition and you're very welcome to everybody who makes the most of that offer of the free sorters with all of your 249 or more offers. Uh, Mark Henry is such an inspiration. The founder of Solid Techniques was born to innovate and engineer 
Uh, age three, he woke up before dawn one Christmas morning, fully assembled a tricky powered <laughs> powered construction set that his parents thought he might struggle with. Fast forward to 40-something years, a metal trade, two degrees, several languages, a string of patents, brands and businesses later, Mark has developed two ranges of innovative first world-first cookware under the brand Solid Techniques, wrought iron, formed low-carbon steel, and also Noni, which is the phoretic wrought stainless cookware that's nickel-free. He is all about durability. He really is a champion for ending this incessant amount of cheap, toxic cookware being purchased multiple units a year in the average family home. And you can find Solid Techniques worldwide, which is great now. So enjoy both of those offers for this month's show. I'll remind you of them each week. And of course, you have all of the details in the show notes. If you wanted to head over to Solid Techniques, the way you spell that is L, uh, solid and then T-E-K-N-I-C-S dot com forward slash shop and use the code LOTOX there for that special offer. Ooh, lots going on. Uh, I now am ready to send you into this fantastic conversation with Dr. Jason Horolak. Enjoy. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm very good, Alex. How are you? I'm excellent. And it is brilliant to have you back on the show. Everybody loved our chat last time. And, uh, good. And- I'm glad. <laughs> you didn't terrify everybody. Don't worry. All good. Good. Um, but I thought we could start by just quickly talking a little bit about your background for anyone who didn't tune into the first show. And I absolutely encourage everybody to do so uh, after you listen to our chat today so that you can get a really good deep dive on the gut microbiome, which is what we focused on in that show. Um, How did you become so interested in all the microbiomes? Because you don't restrict yourself to the gut. No, I mean, the gut is certainly my, was my first passion and still is my first love. But I, and, but I think the, once I started delving into the vaginal microbiome and its, its important role in, in female health and how underaware people, clinicians are around this important topic that it made me extra motivated to, to delve in there, learn some information and share it to try to upskill people. And it was the same with the gut. You go back, you know, I started my, my honors degree almost 20 years ago Wow! Um, in the gut microbiota and people weren't talking that much about no. it. People weren't talking about their poos and, and the importance of the ecosystem. And yes, there were some core microbiota researchers in scattered throughout the world that were, um, and those are the ones that I was, I was tuning into and, and, you, and it's like, this is super important. We need to get this message out here. And I'd always seen as a bit of, seen myself as a bit of a translator of, of getting that information research and um, upskilling clinicians and, and, patient sets so they're actually more more aware of of the importance of these ecosystems and how we can modify it so um those two are certainly my my main passions and i know a lot less about the skin microbiome um and i'd say that we the human human scientists know far less about the skin microbiome um than what we do about those other other areas and you know male genitalia ecosystem is is almost untouched from a research perspective there's very little that's been done to date. Um, breast milk microbiome is, is going off in the last couple of years, but again, you go back five or 10 years, there's like almost no one talking about it. So we're at a pretty, uh, in, uh, I think, important time where 
these researchers are doing some amazing research, which are really clarifying the the roles that these microbes have in keeping us healthy and making us what we are. And I think that's one of the, the key points I like getting across to people too, is that we're not humans that can carry microbes. We are this, this hollow biont, this, this organism that, can, that contains non-human cells and then bacterial, yeah, non-human bacterial cells and then human cells all functioning together. That makes you you. And, and the more we research into this, the more important these microbes um, are. And, and the more we see them where we thought things were sterile before, like, like semen, for example, which you might chat about more later. Mm. But we used to believe that it was, it was essentially sterile, except for in like, you know, men with STI, uh, STIs. And it's like, no, that's certainly not, not the case. And there's actually a, a whole range of different microbiomes that are associated with, with, with you know, less healthier, healthier um, sperm, for example. And, and this is very new research that hasn't filtered out. We don't necessarily know what to do about it yet, but it's still a, a fantastic time of getting information um, produced. Yeah, wow. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the latest research today through the chat, but I would love to ask you a couple of questions that came out of our last chat. Yeah. Uh, and you know, obviously everybody wants thriving gut health, but it yeah. seems to be quite elusive to many, many people these days. And, you know, I'm sure you could uh, share some of the reasons that that has occurred and you certainly did in the last show, but something that came up in the comments again and again was how do I include more prebiotic foods when eating so much as half a lentil <laughs> inflames my gut and makes me the queen of farts? Like that was pretty much the gist of what was coming out of, yeah. um, of the, the comments. And I'd love your advice on how we develop some sort of a blueprint. You know, a lot of people, take them out because they disturb the gut in the first place. And, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. I'm not farting and bloating, but yeah. we're losing out on some really good stuff by removing things like legumes. And we, we are, yeah. and I think sometimes we've like, we, we, oh, I mean, it's maybe it's like putting a bit of a, like a bandaid on a cut or something like that. It's not fixing right. the issue. You're, you're not fixing the underlying reason why you're having issues with, with legumes. I mean, you shouldn't be getting gut pain and cramping and things from eating half a lentil. And that mm. tells us that there's something wrong deeper in the gut. And that yeah. if that's addressed, you can eat those lentils again. I mean, it, it is very normal to fart. And it's very normal to fart more when you eat more legumes. And that there's nothing we can do about that. That's total normality. And I think we just have to get used to society as time progresses that, you know, we're talking about poo now that we didn't talk about, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and we should be talking more about flatulence and the fact that flatulence is normal. We eat more legumes. We're going to, to get more flatulence. That's totally normal and expected. As I said it before, but if you're getting pain, cramping, distension, um, from eating them, then that tells us there's something wrong with the gut. Mm -hmm. And that to me is what you've got to go to a practitioner and try to find out what exactly that is that's going on. That could be low-grade inflammation, um, something that's referred to in the medical literature as visceral hypersensitivity, where the nerves in the um, colon primarily are um, super sensitive. So um, in research settings, they do these, these funky experiments with special balloons that they put up people's bottoms. They pump up these balloons. <laughs> And people with, with I'm not putting my hand up for that test anytime soon. No, Sorry. No, luckily, we don't do this in our clinical practice sessions either. 
Um, but we know that people with irritable bowel syndrome, which is the classic scenario where, where people have gas-related issues, <clears throat> they get pain or discomfort when the balloon is this full. Healthy people, when the balloon is that full, mm -hmm. uh, before they get the same degree of discomfort. And essentially, we know that those nerves are, are triggered to go off with even a small increase in gas. Hence why you go on to a low FODMAP diet, you cut out legumes, you cut out onions and garlic, these, these foods that essentially contain fermentable oligosaccharides, you decrease gas production. No longer are those nerves being triggered because <clears throat> now there's this much gas being produced. Right. Fermentable. So in the short term, it definitely leaves symptoms. There's no doubt about that, but it hasn't fixed the underlying reason, which is the low-grade inflammation that's present. And we know in some people it sticks. Um, <clears throat> a common cause of that low-grade inflammation is traveler's diarrhea or food poisoning. Mm -hmm. And some people, they just get that, that visceral hypersensitivity that lasts for a week after, after an episode of, of traveler's diarrhea. I know I, I was in Bali last year, got traveler's diarrhea my last day back to get Aww. home. And I had visceral hypersensitivity for the first week. Yeah, mm -hmm. And each, each day afterwards, it got a little bit better, a little bit better. Um, and then I was, I was fine. But we know some people, it doesn't heal and they get stuck and can get stuck like that for years. And, those and that's a nerve problem then, right? Yeah, it's essentially the nerves are hypersensitive. So you can cut out those foods, symptoms will improve, but you haven't fixed the issue. Mm -hmm. And the lucky thing, like we can work on that. If you find yourself uh, the right practitioner, they can work on diminishing that visceral hypersensitivity. It's not quick in that scenario. It may take six to nine to 12 months in my experience with working with these patients, but we can do, do that. And then they can eat those legumes again. They'll still fart, but they won't get pain or discomfort or, or bloating associated right. that's, that's a big fantastic. difference and we also know what in terms of the the flatulence perspective that adaptation occurs so if you only ate legumes once a fortnight and you eat a big bowl of black beans you're going to be getting a lot more gas-related issues the following day or two if you essentially eat a small amount of legumes on a regular basis so four or five times a week um, and you can slowly build up. Some people with patients I work with are super sensitive um, and we might be working on the underlying causes. In, in, the, in the meantime, that takes a bit, of, a bit of time essentially to to improve, but we'll start off with like, you know, a teaspoon <laughs> or half yeah. a teaspoon or a couple lentils every couple of days and then daily, et cetera, and we'll slowly work up. Um, I even know when I went, went to um, Sri Lanka last year, you know, I had legumes regularly in my diet, but when I was in Sri Lanka, we had like, lentils for breakfast, lentils for lunch, lentils for dinner with lots of onions and garlic. So it was an upregulation. Up and for the first seven days, I was certainly had a lot more flatus than what I would back here. But then my ecosystem adapts. The microbes that actually deal with gas have a chance to, their populations expand to the great amount of food, which is gas, hydrogen or methane that's available or hydrogen predominantly and it gets shunted somewhere else. So that adaptation occurs. And there, I think, also, depending on the balance of that ecosystem, there can be people where that adaptation process is far slower. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it's that underlying visceral hypersensitivity that's a key driver of that issues with 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 um, prebiotic foods like like legumes, onions, and garlic. But also other people, it's it's slow transit time. So, you know, for some some people, you eat you eat some some food, let's say corn on the cob, because I think it's a, it's a clear example where you can usually see it come at the other end. You eat your corn on the cob at night, and it comes out, you know, 14 hours later. Mm -hmm. Other people eat that corn on the cob; it comes out two weeks later in the toilet. Wow! Bowl. And I kid you not, 
and most I've seen with my patients is I think around some 21 days is, is probably one of the most extreme ends of they ate the corn three weeks later, they saw the corn. In the oh tool. my gosh. So, so do you use this as a patient test, like a preliminary diagnostic tool to see what their transit time's doing? Definitely. definitely. Cool. So that's something everybody could try this week. Very easily. And if it's corn on the cob, black quinoa works pretty well too. You just make sure you don't chew either of them very well. And you also have to eat a decent amount of corn. I do recall sharing with one patient that he just had some corn on the cob and he ate one little nibble, niblet of corn. <laughs> and it was like inspecting his poo like every day. Where yeah, is that? Like, that's just really hard going. Unless you get a sifter out, you're going to have a hard time finding <laughs> that one corn niblet. And I'd prefer you didn't get your sifter out to look through your poo. So eat up, you know, proper corn on the cob. Eat, you know, at least a third or a cup of black quinoa and then it will be noticeable. And you mm-hmm. take an account, write down and put in your phone when you ate it and when it first starts coming out and then when it finishes. You know, for there's going to be some right. people it might come out, start coming out two days, but then it comes out for another two days and it still tells you it's a very slow process. And if it takes that long for the you know, corn to come out or quinoa, it's going to take that long for the gas that's produced to, to actually come out as flattus. Um, and that means that it's going to be sitting in that colon slowly, slowly, every moving a centimeter every few hours, if, if, if we're lucky, <laughs> mm. um, and, and cause distension. So that's the other thing we have to be aware of. And I think those are often the, the two biggest drivers. And then there's also people that have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. That is the, the reason, you know, overgrowth of bacteria in the small bowel um, that is resulting in increased gas in that part of the gut, which is, which is atypical. Um, so those would be the three main reasons why. And that's where I suggest if you're having problems with those, those foods beyond flatus, that you actually contact a practitioner who can try to work out what it is rather than just going on to a restricted diet forever <laughs> yeah. um, and just cope with that. Because it's, it's it generally, if, it, if it's at that point where it's been you know, years, it's not going to get better without help. That's been my experience. And you know, we, as I've mentioned before, for, for most people when they get traveler's diarrhea or food poisoning, it does get better. They got, uh, the body has a great capacity to heal itself, but for some people it's, it, it just gets stuck in a certain point in that where working with the right practitioner can help unstuck it and essentially heal up the underlying visceral hypersensitivity, the low-grade chronic inflammation. That's a key driver. Um, use interventions to try to speed up that transit time and, and help the gas not get stuck and then yeah it's going to get farted out but that's good rather than being you know stuck in your stomach causing distension and discomfort Mm, absolutely and given the entire world can't come and see you jason uh can we have a couple of tips please on auditioning a great gut practitioner because this is enough you know not everyone is created equal not everyone commits themselves to the same depth of research what are some of the questions we should be asking to find a really good gut specialist i think it's worth asking about the visceral hypersensitivity uh, their Mm. approaches to to that that particular uh, issue um how long it tends to take for it to, to repair. And I think you'll probably get some good answers or not good answers back to those mm. questions that might give you an idea. If they've never heard of it before, then they're probably not the one that's going to help um, with, okay. with, with your issue. You know, how, how uh, much of the practice is gut-based, you know, because I think there's a time and place for working with um, generalists, both mm-hmm. you know, general practitioners, but also general naturopaths. And I think there's times that you work with specialists who just do gut. Um, and I can say as, as a clinician that spent nearly 20 years of practice, and, and I've been both, I've been a generalist for certain times of that, whilst also maintaining a good um, relationship with the gut 
research and gut literature and seeing, you know, maybe half my patient load as gut patients, but now where it's you know, perhaps the last, you know, seven or 10 years, it's almost entirely gut, is that the, the, the nuances and knowledge that you have on very specific things are so different than what a generalist has. And it might be that I'm not as good at treating insomnia as I was 10 years ago, or someone else might be, or endometriosis or um, period pain. <laughs> I've lost some of my skills in that area, but I've gained a lot in that area. So I think it's maybe touching base on, on how much years of experience they've, they've have um, dealing mostly with gut conditions that will provide some useful data to work with too. Yeah. Fantastic advice. Um, another thing that came up in the comments was fermented foods. They seem to be my kryptonite rather than a health food. What might be wrong there and what can I do about it? That came up a couple of times. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, these days, and uh, and I'd say, again, uh, as speaking from a clinician who's been in practice for a long time, you see more of this now than you did before. And mm -hmm. I think there's perhaps a couple reasons for that. One is there's more people eating sauerkraut and kimchi now than what there was 20 years ago. I still recall teaching students back in 2000 about the gut microbiota and, and probiotics, and I'd bring in my, my homemade, you know, spicy sauerkraut for students to take taste, and they're like, you know, it was all funny back then, weird. And <laughs> weren't that many people doing it? Whereas now everyone's talking about it. So there's a lot more people are, who are exposed to it. So that's going to increase the portion of people who are more, um, will react to it for, just for that simple purpose of more people doing it. But I do think a, a common driver of reacting to probably the histamine and amine content in those fermented foods is actually a leaky small bowel. Um, mm. And also potentially a you know, leaky colon or slow, slow transit time colon as well, where things can get reabsorbed. If, if you've got fecal matter in there for 10 days or two weeks, there's a lot of time to reabsorb compounds from that fecal matter um, compared to a 12 hour or 16 hour transit time. Um, and that can include sort of bacterial compounds, et cetera, and bacterial byproducts. And I think often what people are, are reacting to are, as I said before, the amines and histamines and I think this, the leaky small bowel is a key contributor to that as well. So when you've got those big big gaps in the in this in the um, intestinal lining, you're actually absorbing these whole, full histamine whole and, and amines that you otherwise wouldn't when you've got intact mucosa. And I think often addressing the underlying um, increase in intestinal permeability tends to to make a difference. So it might be a short term period where you're, you've cut out those fermented foods while you focus on, on healing the gut. And then once it's actually healed, you'll have a better capacity to um, consume those foods again. Fantastic advice. Once again, go find a specialist in all yeah. things gut. Awesome. Um, and can I ask on the ferment front, um, wild ferments versus uh, specific culturing um, products, when is either a better idea than the other? Any cases that you might want to consider one over the other? Well, I, mean, I would never use the wild ferment as a therapeutic agent in mm -hmm. the same way because it's, it's wild. It's, it's um, there's less control, right? Less control. You don't know what you're getting at what quantity. Yeah, uh, you're not quite sure exactly what it's going to do. And when you get into the nitty gritty of probiotic research, um, we know that it's it's strains within species can differ dramatically in terms of therapeutic effects. Um, and we may have discussed this last time, so I apologize if it's repeating it, but 
I like to explain to patients that, that strains of bacteria are like breeds of dogs, that they're all, all dogs of the same species, Canis familiaris, but they actually differ a lot. And they have mm. different things turned on or turned off that actually differ how they behave, what they look like, et cetera. Now, with bacteria, strains within the same species don't necessarily look different, although in some cases they might in small ways, but it can dictate whether they're therapeutic, totally not, <laughs> mm. um, or whether they're potentially harmful when it comes to some, some species like, like E. coli for example, or we've got, you know, a strain that's, that's a well-defined, well-characterized, well-researched therapeutic agent like Nissel 1917 to the, you know, 0157 strain of E. coli that can cause uh, bloody diarrhea, kidney failure, and death. Same species. There's two different genes turned off or on and can determine whether it's pathogenic or not. Now, in the worlds of, of ferments, we're dealing generally with lactobacilli. Um, for, for most of the ferments that we're discussing, and we don't have the same spread, thankfully. We don't have the ones to cause kidney failure and death. But what we do have is ones that don't have a therapeutic effect besides making food really tasty, producing some you know, um, acetate and lactate as part of that ferment process, you know, making nutrients more bioavailable, all good reasons to eat fermented foods. But they may actually not have any tolerance of stomach acid. So, so they will just die in your stomach. Or they won't tolerate bile. So they hit your small bowel, the liver squeezes some bile, they die. You know, so we're not getting any therapeutic effect besides the other qualities I mentioned before. Yet other strains will will have gastric acid tolerance. They'll tolerate bile. They can ad adhere at least temporarily to small intestinal cells. They can interact with the immune system in different ways to, to promote certain aspects of the immune response and be therapeutic. But it's it's a, a crapshoot when we're using a wild fruit. We don't know where it's going to be in that in that spectrum. You might have randomly come across the most wonderful strain of lactose plantarum in the entire world that's amazingly good at healing gut, or there's also an equal chance you found one that dies in the stomach and doesn't go any further. Um, whereas with a uh, well-defined ferment, we know exactly what strains are going into it, and we should know what the qualities of, of those strains are in terms of you know, stomach acid tolerance, bile salt tolerance, and hopefully they've got therapeutic effects beyond that. And this is why I'm really stickler with, with probiotics and using the ones that have one, those qualities, and two, actual therapeutic effects that have been defined in human research. Uh, and those are the ones I rely on as therapeutic foods or tools in practice. And sometimes those well-characterized strains will be added to some, some brands of yogurt. So you can still eat them as a food form, but it's well-characterized ferment. Um, and I call that a medicinal yogurt versus a food yogurt. They've just added um, lactobacillus delbrucii, subspecies bulgaricus, streptococcus thermophilus. They convert milk into yogurt, but they don't necessarily have by default any sort of therapeutic benefit beyond just the nutritional profile that changes in the milk, for example. Whereas some companies will add specific probiotic strains, well-researched to that yogurt, and that way you're getting a therapeutic food. So I will rely on those, and, and often they're obviously available in you know, probiotic lozenges and capsules and powders, et cetera, too. Um, but it's the wild ferments that I, I eat daily personally, but I don't rely on as a therapeutic tool in my practice. Right. Thanks for clarifying that. Uh, and obviously there are multiple microbiomes and I mentioned briefly, as did you in your introduction, your uh, interest in the role that the vaginal microbiome played in women's health. Can yep. you talk, let's start there. And I wanted to touch on nose and um, what was the other one? Skin afterwards. What are we missing in the practitioner dialogue at the moment when it comes to symptoms that might be presenting in a woman 
and the role that the vaginal microbiome is playing in those symptoms? Great questions. Um, Because I think that we we do need to have more awareness around this, both as, um, you know, general populace, but also the practitioners would have more awareness around this too. And I think perhaps one of the first things to point out is that you can have, women can have a, a, what we call a dysbiotic, imbalanced vaginal ecosystem and have no symptoms, no mm-hmm. obvious symptoms. So no, no discharge, no itching, no irritation. So the lack of symptoms does not necessarily mean it's a, it's a healthy ecosystem. So that's, that's point one that's worth flagging. And how that dysbiotic um, ecosystem might contribute to, to, to ill health would actually be through um, perhaps uh, challenges following pregnant, for example. We know that a, a dysbiotic vaginal ecosystem, even one that's completely asymptomatic, so no symptoms, will actually result in, in a much harder time following pregnant, for example. You know, wow. Thing. Uh, we know that that sort of dysbiotic ecosystem um, increases the risk of getting SDIs. Yeah, that if you have a really robust lactobacillus-dominated vaginal ecosystem, um, essentially pathogens that, that get exposed there will generally die and not have a chance to, to do anything. And that, that includes things, they've done this research in Africa of HIV AIDS, that, that you know, sex workers in, in rural Africa that, are, that actually have a healthy vaginal ecosystem have far lower rates of HIV and AIDS than those that have a dysbiotic ecosystem. It's because of the healthy vaginal lactobacillus like can kill off the HIV virus. Wow. The dysbiotic ones can't. And that's not in a whole range of SCIs, it's the same scenario. And um, the HPV virus, similar. That is, you've got a healthy lactobacillus dominant ecosystem, HPV virus will just be killed <laughs> when it actually enters the vaginal ecosystem versus when it's dysbiotic, not acidic enough, that HPV can actually survive and cause inflammation and get into the system. And that increases the risk of cervical cancer. <gasps> and those things, I think that this should be flagged. This should be a big issue. We should be talking about this because there are women that are, that are unbeknownst to, that, to that themselves that they've got an abnormal ecosystem that predisposes them to a range of both short-term and long-term health consequences. So why the heck are we not putting millions and millions of dollars of research uh, into the vaginal microbiome and, and uh, probiotic therapy down there uh, and yeah. instead just vaccinating everybody? And this is not to be controversial on the topic of vaccines. They have their place, of course. But uh, I, I really, what you've just said sounds to me like it's, an incredibly groundbreaking and far less invasive potential uh, therapy against HPV. It's certainly something that we, we should be, be flagging at a, at a population level that there's a, you know, we're talking about health interventions people can do or should be aware of that have big change, big outcomes. And I think this is one of those too, is that if we're aware of the importance of that ecosystem and, and the, uh, increased disease risk associated with it with a dysbiotic ecosystem then when people know that they can make changes yeah it's huge yeah um so i don't know why there's not nearly as much awareness of this issue as what there should be which is why i'm here chatting to you yeah often just around this too because i think it, it is huge um mm. and i can say that that as someone that's been looking at vaginal microbiota research for probably about 15 years is that it's come a long way and there's a lot of people talking about this now that weren't 10 years ago. And, and I dare say another 10, 10 years from now, this will probably be something that be part of the general training of, of health practitioners across the board. The moment it's not, 
And I think this is problematic because again, no symptoms, you're not going to, to even bother querying around it unless you were having trouble falling pregnant, for example. I had a patient just yesterday in my practice who um, a hard time falling pregnant, you know, otherwise really, really health, health conscious person focused on your exercise, great diet for years. Um, and then we looked at the vaginal ecosystem and like, ah, oh, gosh, okay, you've got a, a dysbiotic ecosystem. She had no symptoms. You know, mm. There was no discharge. There was no pain, no irritation, no itching. It suggested that there was, it was, um, you know, diseased or any, you know, I had, had a condition associated. It's just was the ecosystem wasn't, wasn't as healthy as what it should be. And in that scenario, we know that it's associated with poor outcomes when it comes to birth. And, and the, the strategy at this point is trying to optimize that vaginal ecosystem and we'll see how that goes but the research tells us that if we can do that we women get far better birth outcomes wow and so how can how one test well i think one of the simplest w- techniques that can be used and it's very inexpensive is actually doing a, a vaginal ph test mm-hmm. yeah and i think what i like about this is simple women can do it in their home minimal like, expense. like using ph litmus paper Yes, but it's got to be a pH litmus paper that actually can test the right pH. So the ones that go between 1 to 14 aren't going to give you the nuances that you need. So you need to be able to see um, where it's at between 4.6 and 4.7 versus 4.3 of pH. Oh, wow. There there are pH strips. Not as easy to get as as you'd imagine, actually. Like in our clinic um, in Hobart, we we get them in, but we have to order these pH test kits in from Germany um, to actually have the right gradients to to assess vaginal health, uh, which again is is mind blowing. And there there was maybe a decade ago a product on the Australian market that was vaginal pH test strip that's no longer made. So it's just that other sort of barrier (laughs) of accessing a very simple tool that can assess uh, whether it's it's, uh, we had a good chance if it's a pH of 4.5 or greater, which is more alkaline than 4.5. If it's 4.6, we know that it's essentially a dysbiotic ecosystem with a great degree of certainty. You know, right. Easy um, screen, and then that could be followed up with, with, with more thorough testing. And I think there's a couple ways of, of doing that. There's the the typical. Um, way that's used most widely in medicine now, which is just like a, a general swab looking for pathogens. Um, and, and that is, should be part of the, the simple screen. It should be part of the screen now, but I do think that what the research is, is focusing on and what tools I like using in my practice is actually using what's called molecular techniques looking for, for DNA. And we're trying to find the balance of the ecosystem. We're not just looking for pathogens, we're looking to see what, how healthy the ecosystem is. So mm-hmm. I think they, those things complement each other well that's when you get the the data from the um molecular techniques you can go down to okay okay what species of lactobacilli is there what percentage of lactobacilli makes up that ecosystem is it just five percent you know we don't want to know just whether it's there or not we want to know how much it dominates and this is some one of the, the key aspects that, that makes vaginal ecosystems actually quite different from gut or or skin or breast milk microbiomes, for example, where they're all associated, a healthy ecosystem is associated with wider diversity. So the more microbes, more species present, generally we see that's great, that's really healthy ecosystem. Vagina is complete opposite. We don't want lots of species present. We really want, you know, one lactobacilli to just dominate. <laughs> um, gotcha. That, that dramatically at maybe 90, 95, 98% of that ecosystem. That's what we're after. Um, and that's what those molecular techniques tell us. It's what percentage is it? and what species it is. And that's the other thing is, it's not just about lactobacilli. 
differences did this for me, you know, different species of lactose so that I can dominate uh, vaginal ecosystem. And there's, there's a couple of those that are more important from a health perspective. And you won't get that from that traditional doctor swab that might go, okay, yeah, there's some lactose in there. That's all we'll tell you. Whereas the molecular techniques will tell you <clears throat> what species and how much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that as a, as a clinician, wonderful information to, to, to base the um, intervention decisions on. Right. And is that something that any GP or naturopath can get their hands on if the patient knows to have a discussion with them about this test and wanting to get it? No, I'd say it's probably mm. not that easy. I think, it, again, it's finding someone that's got experience in that yeah. area, um, awareness of what labs are doing. It. And it's not easy to get here. Mm. And again, this is frustrating as an Australian clinician is that there's no lab in Australia even offering this very simple test. Well, I'd say it's simple. This lab's offering the gut version. It's essentially the same technology to, to do the vaginal test. And I think really will happen in 10 years' time, but I just wish it would happen now so we could actually refer our far more women to doing this test at the level it's a matter of organizing these tests ship over from the u.s and then there's a bit of a time delay in that whole process mm. um so it's not not simple and no a company in the uk is just coming up with a new test but it, which is great nice and thorough but it's it's still at the time frame and the costs are associated with it that it would be i just look forward to having it something that maybe is subsidized by the government <laughs> all everyone's doing it it's just part of the general health screen uh, let's just check how healthy the general ecosystem is. Yeah. Let's just check because there's repercussions to that if, it, if, it's, if it's in a dysbiotic state. Absolutely. This to me seems like a, a key preventative for potentially for fertility, potentially for HPV, potentially for yeah. HIV. And if the research is preliminarily showing us that, it just, the mind boggles as to why there isn't more being thrown behind it. Yeah, I, I totally hear you. <laughs> and mm. I think it's just, it's the slowness. Yeah. You know, for things to go from research into practical reality, and it, it takes decades. And it's yeah. just, I mean, you'll, you'll get clinicians who are ahead of the game um, on individual levels who, who keep up with the research and, you know, university lecturers who are keeping up the research, research, but it's, it's getting it out there to the majority of practitioners who are dealing with majority of patients. That's a really, really slow process. Um, mm. So again, it's trying to find out, find practitioners who are aware of these things and can can do these tests and how to interpret them, etc. That's the other aspect too, like the number of. I mean, again, I'm doing mostly gut stuff, but people who take the like a microbiome analysis to their, their typical GP, who's just like has no idea mm. what to do with it and how to how to how how it's related to anything, how to modify it, and, and, and essentially because it's just lack of, of knowledge in that area. That will be brilliant in many other areas, but just, yeah, exactly. Just, it's all through the lens that we learn through and with that, that has limitations depending on what that person's learned. Yeah. And when they were trained and, and where data was at that, at that time point, you know, and I think that's why it's, it's a, you know, a couple of generations into the future of training. This information gets out there into, to, to university lecturers, for example, who then will, will teach that to students who then will learn it. <laughs> Mm. actually have a chance to utilize it in their practice but because of the way the health training is for health professionals it may be a while before that happens and there's that lag time with labs offering these tests until there's a demand for for, from enough clinicians to make that test profitable um to actually run so it's it's a process that will eventually get there but it's frustrating from a clinical perspective and it's frustrating from a public health perspective because i just think that there's so many people that could benefit um in so many different ways that we could actually do this more easily and cheaply. 
Mm, absolutely. And, um, and potentially prevent a lot more expensive healthcare yes. uh, that results from not knowing. That's yeah. the thing that, you know, gets me every time with some of these big preventative health potentials is you have often government, all kinds of governments all over the world complaining about healthcare costs and how to cover everybody. And yet, not realizing or acting effectively enough in the preventative space to reduce those costs. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, we could talk about that for a while, <laughs> <laughs> but I will continue on. A question here on vaginal microbiome, strep B, where are we at with that with pregnant women? Because I remember when I was pregnant uh, 11 and a half years ago, uh, no, 10, uh, 10 and a half years ago now, uh, and had to get the strep B test and I tested positive. And that meant that I needed to take, I think I needed to be on antibiotics during my birth. Yep. Um, yeah. I remember being given the, the um, what do you call those little um, cannula with the antibiotics going in. And, and then of course, learning everything that I now know and wishing I could turn back the clock, but we can't. So we do the best with what we know now and change things for the future. Very much so. Where are we at with that? Um, And if a woman today gets told, right, you've got strep B, so that means we're going to need to give you antibiotics. Is there anything else that they can do? Yeah, there is. And, and be brutally honest. Like I think, you know, so many women want to do the best for themselves and their baby yeah. and, uh, and prevent the use of antibiotics during birth. And Yeah, and the more we research that, the more important we're seeing that aspect being is that 100%. Kind of use in that like last period of time before birth and during the labor process, we know actually has outcomes for, for that child of increased risk of obesity and a- asthma, asthma development and eczema development, et cetera, from that one course of that one prime point. So mm. um, it's something we need to consider more. <sighs> B-group strep is an interesting microbe in that different countries in the world approach it differently. You know, and we just happen to be, well, we're in Australia, where they happen to, to see it very much as a pathogen that we need to sort out if it, if it shows up. And again, I, I'm, I hope for the future, they actually start implementing the um, rather than just swabbing to see whether it's present or not is you do a DNA test and you work out, okay, it's there at 0.05% of an ecosystem or it's there at 98% of an ecosystem, which do you think is likely to prove problematic to that infant and which mm. is not. And I think, and I've done those tests with women and some women do have 98% B group strep. Is that going to be a problem? Quite likely that's what's going to be inoculated in giant amounts for that infant, but the one that's present at 0.05%, probably not. Um, yet we'll still treat both women essentially the same by giving them both antibiotic courses at that, at that time point. So again, I think there's hope for the future when we move into to more accurate testing technology that will start thinking rather than black and white, it's okay, where, what percentage is this actually problematic, rather than it's there or not? Because it's there in a lot of women, and in most mm. women it's probably in a small proportion where it's not problematic. But we know that in the those ones where it is a higher, most likely higher proportion where the bub can't get colonized with B-group strep at that point that some, some kids get pneumonia and they get very unwell and can occasionally die. So that's what they're, they're um, trying to balance up. Of and course. In the traditional view, antibiotics are seen as harmless, that they might cause a bit of antibiotic-associated diarrhea, maybe a bit of antibiotic resistance, which you don't really worry about too much, um, but they may, may save you know, one in a thousand. I, and I don't know the exact stats, what, what, what the 
how many kids need to be moms need to be treated to save how many kids from B group strep. But it's, it's probably you're, you're talking about perhaps hundreds or no, it's not thousands of women that need to be treated for for you know to prevent one case of pneumonia. But don't quote me on the number needed to treat because I don't have that one in my head. Yeah. Um, but as in the future, I think we'll have more data around that. But just taking a step back, I think in many ways it's better to find out about B group strep much earlier in the pregnancy rather than at that you know week six. 36, 37 Yeah, it's time. done really, really late. It is. And that's, and again, this is, I think, another reason for doing, you know, good vaginal testing earlier on is you can go, oh, okay, you actually do have B-group strep. Because there, there is some interesting research with some probiotics that can, can eradicate B-group strep. Mm. 100% of cases, no. But still, I, and again, my brain's a little bit foggy on the exact numbers, but it, I think it was around at least 50% mark, thereabouts. Of, 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 wow. You're right. It's like, okay, that's a pretty simple thing we can do for four weeks leading up to that week 32nd, 36 of a time point is try to get rid of it before that, that testing time point. That's, that's the ideal scenario. There's some <clears throat> very interesting research using garlic to treat B-group strep. And, and this wasn't done in pregnancy, but these were women that had severe B-group strep infections um, that was causing like you know, vaginal fissures and bleeding and things, very severe, very high levels that responded really well. Um, and apparently with little irritation from intravaginal garlic applications. Oh, wow. So I, I think there are, yeah. <laughs> and I think there's other herbal options too that, that, that we've used in our practice to, to actually you know, help clear B-group strep prior to that point. But once you get a positive test result, it's, it can be hard to come back from there. So if you get tested week 36, um, and even if you did use natural medicines to, to, to eradicate it and then um, do a follow-up test at week 39, my experience has been is that it will still want to give you antibiotics. Anyway, mm. it was tested positive once. Yeah. So the advice yeah. here is get the request the test really early in the pregnancy so that well, you get, or even prior. Well, yeah. As or, part of your preconception plan to, even. Yes. And, and I think vaginal ecosystem health should be part of preconception. It should be part of a pregnancy follow-up too to make sure that see where that's going and whether we can do anything to help make the ecosystem as healthy as possible because again um we talked before about fertility outcomes being better where we have a healthier ecosystem birth outcomes are better if we have a healthier ecosystem in terms of uh, reduced risk of premature rupture of the membranes reduced risk of premature birth etc with a healthier ecosystem so i think another wow. reason for trying to optimize that ecosystem throughout pregnancy as well as pre-pregnancy and it's that sort of testing that we want to be doing um to see whether the G group strep is PBS is present, and then whether we can use a range of, of natural medicines, probiotics, etc., to to get rid of it, um, and, and then hopefully in the future, as I said, we'll move to the at a certain percentage point, it's problematic versus just being present at all. It's problematic mm. like we are now. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like an exciting exciting thing to look forward to in the future. Yeah, it is. Um, okay, so let's go way further up the body and look at the nose. When, you know, I remember when I moved to the water damaged building that we then lived in for eight years that I didn't know was water damaged because it was in the walls and um, under the floor. Okay. Um, I remember I had never had sinusitis or hay fever ever, ever, ever in my life until we moved there. And, um, and then it just became a regular thing that I experienced. So obviously things changed in my nasal microbiome living in that apartment yeah. to cause those symptoms. Are there other, um, other, like, can you have a disrupted nasal microbiome without symptoms as well? Is, is it like the vagina? 
Okay, I mean, my knowledge of this ecosystem is is more limited, um, mm -hmm. and to the best of my knowledge, I would suggest that there probably some manifestation of, of that dysbiotic ecosystem, which could be, you know, increased. You know, it could be obviously the, the, things like recurrent sinusitis or chronic sinusitis that never goes. And one would argue that that like allergic hay fever rhinitis would be probably associated with a, with a dysbiotic ecosystem as well. Um, but how frequently you get your respiratory tract infections, I dare say, is linked in with that. That too, that if you happen to have a, more pro-inflammatory microbes in your nasal cavity that are keeping your um, muco mucosal layer a bit inflamed, it's much easier for viruses to to get in. For example, so I think you know frequent respiratory tract infections, chronic sinusitis, you know hay fever are probably the classic ones I would see as being associated with altered nasal microbiomes. Yeah. And often if you go to your doctor, you'll be given like an antibiotic nasal spray uh, when, when these sorts of things pop up. What are your favorite natural interventions for that? Yeah. I mean, certainly for, for sinusitis, I think there's can be a number of approaches that can prove fruitful. Uh, and, and sinusitis is something that, that I've treated as, as a natural for, for many, many years. Mm. Um, and we're often using herbal medicines that we see as traditionally as anti-catarrhal herbs that that actually help dry up sort of excess mucus in one's you know sinus cavity, and that can they can prove helpful as well as the herbs that improve immune response like, like echinacea. But then we might be complementing the sort of things that people are taking internally by uh, using something that they can inhale and or spray to to help decrease um, or change that that sort of in, infected ecosystem. In the nose, so that can be you know even burning essential oils or smelling lavender oil, for example. That those simple things like that can actually help change ecosystems because those essential oil compounds, volatile compounds, have pretty potent antimicrobial activity. Um, but then you can also use you know nettie washes with sometimes as simple as salt or salt and xylitol um, can can be very helpful. But then other times we'll, we'll add herbs to that too. And I've certainly used. In my practice, a few different herbs, some, some like uh, Coptis chinensis, which is an extremely bitter tasting herb that's very high in berberine, um, which can mm. be a very potent antimicrobial. Um, these days, I've been using more green tea as a nasal rinse because it's arguably more selective in its activity uh, in terms of killing bugs we don't want, uh, a bit of healthier on the mucus, mucus membrane, um, and I think better from a to taste tolerability front than the coptis, which is immensely bitter because it does drain down the back of your, your <laughs> nose. Yeah. <laughs> that's another consideration. But there certainly are herbs we can use to, to apply locally that can that seem to help. As I said before, smelling the essential oils and then other, other herbs we can take orally that just help lift immune system response and can alter the muco mucus dynamics in, in the nose. There's other herbs that can really accelerate the secretion of thinner mucus that can be helpful to dislodge sort of more congested, harder muck. Um, that can be some simple things like chili, like having like a super duper hot, spicy, um, anything <laughs> can be enough to really get your nose running and that can dislodge some really thick congested stuff, which can be a useful step. Things like wasabi, horseradish, again, can be useful just to try to help get rid of stuck. Mm. And when you just mentioned green tea before, so you're saying steeping it, cooling it a little bit to be just warm and then using it as a neti pot rinse? Yeah. Wow. Um, Green tea is a pretty—it's a really amazing substance. Like it's got all the anti-cancer research that's, that's being done throughout the world over the last couple of decades. But um, it is 
great for oral oral health as well in terms of pre- preventing the growth of, of gum disease causing bacteria and dental carie cavity causing bacteria and it can break down you know biofilm from sort of oral pathogens break down biofilm from candida but it's selective that's the cool thing about the green tea too is that it actually um, doesn't seem to kill our lactobacilli which is why i often use green tea in, in vaginal preparations too because it it leaves the, the lactobacilli alone but can actually get rid of some some of the pathogens that may well be present um in that ecosystem as well wow it's clever and, stuff and it displays anti um antiviral activity and there's a very cool study done where they had you know, people in uh, sort of older age care and they, um, during influenza season, and they had one group gargle green tea daily, one group gargle a placebo drink, I can't remember what it was. Um, and the incidence of influenza was dramatically reduced in those that gargled with green tea. Just gargling it, not even gargling. ingesting it. Yeah. And because green tea, it's got antiviral properties. So if it, if it contacts the virus, it will kill it. Now, once the influenza is like in your lungs, in your system, green tea is not going to be helpful in that instance, but as a preventative, it can work very well. Ah, um, gotcha. that, that I, I use um, commonly during that sort of winter, winter period where there's, you know, lots of uh, influence and other viral infections going about that, that actually using green tea that you can, you can gargle and drink. <laughs> you'll, you'll get the same benefits, if not more than doing that, or you can gargle and swish if you really don't like the taste of green tea or the, the caffeine aspect of the green tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the caffeine aspect is, is, is that a big consideration? Is it, does it act in a different way because of what its um, companion compounds are in green tea than it does in coffee? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that it does. If you have things like L-theanine in the green tea, that tends to be much more calming and relaxing. So uh, you wouldn't get nearly the same sort of caffeine hit as you would with the equivalent amount of, of caffeine in coffee for example. Mm-hmm. And there's less caffeine in general with, with green tea and a cup per cup than there is with a comparable cup of, of coffee as well. But you get the other aspects that, that tone down. That mm. Some people that find, you know, coffee a bit like, you know, a bit much for their nerves, but, but we'll, we'll tolerate green tea. Totally fine. Fantastic. Uh, I didn't realize we were going to go on a green tea is awesome tangent, but that no. was really interesting. <laughs> it, it is very cool. Yeah. yeah super cool. Now, another microbiome is obviously our skin. And you did say that this wasn't your big wheelhouse. No. But, um, but in terms of its importance, uh, and, I, and I feel like the research is only just starting to scratch the surface, can we at the very least say that all of this antibacterial nonsense in product land uh, ha- has done our skin microbiome a great disservice? I think we can definitely say that. Okay, great. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, so many teens are still using things like Physohex or it's still being recommended after, um, you know, like bacterial infections that you might get on your skin when it sounds to me like you could just do a green tea face wash and that would be far more useful. I reckon so. And, and we've had some good, good clinical responses with green tea as a, you know, what we see as, as a skin prebiotic. But, but I think this is the area that, that is under-researched yet is that we're starting to define, you know, what, what makes a skin microbiome. But it's, 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 it's like the gut is that it's, it's different in different spots and that your skin microbiome, this little crease of your nose here, the bacterial populations are completely different than your cheek. Wow. It's completely different from what's growing behind your ear to reverse it in your armpit. And, and this is the thing that's a bit confusing 
And, and while we're at the early stages yet, they're like, hey, we're defining it. We're going, okay, this ecosystem is very different in this area. What's normal? And we test hundreds of people and go, okay, these are the species that are usually there at these proportions. The next step is, what do you do about that? What do you, how do you change that, that ecosystem? And, and once again, we'll be talking about the future here because there's researchers out there going, right, how do we make a skin probiotic you know, that's not you know, based on, on the bugs that are usually found in our gut, but the bugs that are usually found on our skin? So we can, we can put that on the skin to actually improve eczema or improve psoriasis you know, or improve acne. So, mm-hmm. I, so I've got lots of hope for the future in terms of where that will lead in terms of skin probiotics, skin prebiotics, uh, a bit more focus on, on avoiding things that cause damage to that skin ecosystem. Um, and that can be um, some cosmetics, <laughs> some moisturizers, obviously those, those antibacterial everything um and even oral antibiotics we know can actually alter the, the skin ecosystem Interesting. oh wow from the inside out yeah mm. and is that the same reason that gut health relates to things like eczema and psoriasis proliferation in some cases as well i think it's probably a little bit different and i think that we're talking with things like psoriasis and and um, atopic eczema, we're often talking about, or at least from my, the way I look at things, we're talking about gut integrity mm-hmm. um, and, and perhaps you know, where the proteins are being absorbed intact when it comes to, to things like atopic eczema. You know? So if you've got a dysbiotic ecosystem that has led, leads to increased intestinal permeability, you've got more gaps, more food proteins get in there, and it just tends to manifest in some people in those typical eczema spots. For example, uh, but we also know that that in that early age, if the ecosystem hasn't evolved and developed the way it's supposed to, yeah, that we have long-term immune dysregulation as a consequence. Gotcha. And, and this is where that early antibiotic exposure, uh, C-section birth, lack of breastfeeding, all those things tend to to feed into that that um, poorly trained immune system, and that the in humans immune system cells have evolved this relationship with, with, a certain, with certain gut microbes who develop over a certain period of time post-birth. Mm-hmm. And if we change what they're seeded with, we change how they develop and what ratio they're in, we change how the immune system is trained to function for life. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, with the research that's coming out these days. So um, that's where I think it, it can play a key role in things like atopic eczema. Um, is really around that immune system training, and and arguably people are saying too with with you know autoimmune disease is related to that dysfunctional training of the immune system from an early age as yeah. well. Um, and with psoriasis, there is some research suggesting that bacterial byproducts like endotoxins um, are higher in the bloodstream of people with psoriasis. So again, altering the ecosystem, so you improve gut integrity, but you decrease endotoxin um, essentially production in the gut tends to improve psoriasis. And for people who don't know what endotoxins are, can you just give us a brief rundown? Yeah, fair enough. There'll be quite a few (laughs) potentially. Um, Endotoxins, also known as lipopolysaccharide or LPS. Um, Mm -hmm. And certain bacterial groups in the gut just grow LPS. It's not a toxin like it's trying to secrete to make us ill. Just like we grow hair, we grow fingernails. It grows LPS. Mm -hmm. And it's just that when they when those bacteria die and they're dying all the time they release that endotoxin into the gut and a certain amount will get absorbed from that but the amount of endotoxin producing bacteria differs dramatically from person to person and that depends on what you eat what you're originally seeded with antibiotic use all those other lifestyle factors but 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 diet is, is a huge role some people might be contain 60 percent lps containing bacteria 
other people 30 percent gotcha 40 percent and that means you can have twice the load of this pro-inflammatory endotoxin in in the gut um, which then in higher quantity in the gut get more of it gets into the circulation and then we now linking that endotoxemia to depression anxiety alzheimer's disease cardiovascular disease um obesity type 2 diabetes all linked to increased absorption of endotoxin from gut bacteria and is that something we can test Yes. So again, using a good modern um, approach to, to, to gut microbiota analysis will tell us what the, the ratio of, of proteobacteria and bacteroidetes, but primarily proteobacteria, is, which is a, uh, a phylum of bacteria, which has the most pro-inflammatory endotoxin. And, and that can differ for some people. It could be 0.05% of the ecosystem could be proteobacteria, other people 20%. And that's huge differences in terms of the inflammatory stimuli that, that comes from that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a point that, uh, that I always like making is that the, your ecosystem, your, your gut microbiota is either increasing inflammation in your body yeah. or decreasing inflammation in your body. And how that manifests will differ per person. This is where genes come into it and other factors come into it. But we know that inflammation is such a key driver of, of most of the conditions that we as Westerners tend to suffer from yeah. in the short term and in the long term. And here we've, we've got a, a huge driver of that inflammation, potentially, depending on what we eat and what microbes are there, versus a, a huge um, therapeutic, potential therapeutic agent to help decrease inflammation body-wide. Mm-hmm. And it just cut out when you mentioned the type of probiotic that we're looking for in a, um, a gut microbiome test. Ah, so okay. So it wasn't probiotics, but it had a similar name, proteobacteria. Proteobacteria. Thank you. Yeah. It was literally cut. And I was like, no, what is that? Thank yeah. you. So it's just a group of bacteria. And, and within that group of bacteria, we tend to get Shigella, Salmonella, Campylobacter, Klebsiella, E. coli. There's lots of you know, gotcha. more disease-causing bacteria within that grouping. And there's lots of others that are normal inhabitants in the gut and aren't typically disease-causing the same way, but mm. just by their nature and, and the quantity that they're there drive inflammation. So same as strep B in the vagina, where in a teeny tiny amount kept in check, not yeah. an issue, uh, or you know, most potentially not an issue. Yeah. Same, same deal with endotoxins. Okay. I would say so. Yeah, because because we're we're when the gut again is attacked, you don't get much endotoxin getting through, and the liver can deal with with a small amount that it tends to get through, and very tiny amounts ever get into your your circulation mm-hmm. when all, all is going well. But when you change things around, and, and again, I can think of a patient I saw this past week, um, three year old with who we've just worked out has got celiac disease three-year-old with, with, with liver damage. Mm. Um, where is the liver damage coming from? Endotoxins from the gut. Right. Because the gluten has caused all the gut damage in the celiac patient, all these bacterial endotoxins are getting in and causing damage to the liver. Now, thankfully, it's will be repairable once we cut out gluten properly, get the gut healed, and, and alter that gut ecosystem, the liver will regenerate. But it's just one of those clear examples of where a leaky gut was essentially causing this, this, this damaged liver in this you know, lovely little three-year-old. Um, oh, that poor little lady. lady. Thank God she got to you. Well, I'm glad we were able to work out that it was celiac. It's, yeah, absolutely. going to change their, their life from this time point. It sure will. Um, okay. Wow. Another fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Um, I might finish by asking you if there's anything you're super excited about in either current research that has 
emerged in the last six months since we last spoke or uh, maybe a paper you're eagerly awaiting the results on because of its potential? Anything cool coming up? There, there is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of what, how to answer that. I mean, I think there's a few areas that I'm, I'm particularly keen to see how research evolves. And, and I'll look at Alzheimer's disease and, and the microbiota. I think this is an area that we should need to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. And there's been some preliminary research using probiotics as an intervention in Alzheimer's with beneficial outcomes to date. Wow. And and I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. And what we will be seeing is more research on on prebiotics, which I think arguably might have a stronger capacity to alter um, the disease process of, that we see as Alzheimer's. Um, so I think that's super exciting to keep an eye on. Um, and I, I mean, I've read a very interesting study today, which might be relevant. <laughs> yeah, what, what hot off the press. Go for hot it. off the press. Yeah. It's <laughs> a, a journal called Gut, which is one of my favorite journals just because of the mm-hmm. name Gut. It's, it's literally the gut it's journal. It's just called Gut. Okay. And it's produced by the, the British Medical Journal. So it's, it's like really high impact, fantastic quality research in gut. And <clears throat> they're looking at the, the impact of antibiotics on the gut microflora. And they're just looking at this one individual person. I gave them this, this course of antibiotics and this microbe that they'd never heard of before um, called Bork Falki. <laughs> what? They, Say it again. Themselves, Bork Falki. Uh-huh. Um, I'd never heard it before I was, because it just was named now. This is like the first study that's ever found it. But it went from nearly 0% of the ecosystem pre-antibiotics to 92% of that <gasps> ecosystem after that course of antibiotics. Wow. Which is just amazing the change in that dynamic. Um, and, and they also found that I think nine species went extinct from that single course of antibiotics. And I think for me, it's just mind blowing how much that one intervention, the, the impact on that ecosystem, the short term of that huge leap with a bug we didn't even know existed. We have no idea what it does, mm. um, but it went from nearly zero to 92% of that ecosystem. And then it started trailing back down. Um, but what impact does it have when it's at 92% of the ecosystem? You know, how yeah. is it interrelating with the, 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 the human cells when it's at that mm. point versus where it should be? This is what's going to be teased out into the future. But that lack, loss of nine species, permanently gone, extinct from that ecosystem, I think was also like, just pretty mind-blowing too because um, we often think that, oh, the odd course. And the, listen, antibiotics save lives, they save limbs, and, and we should use them always in those situations. But we know that they're overused. Mm. Um, and I think that's extremely problematic from a societal perspective of the growth of antibiotic resistant genes, but um, from an individual perspective of the loss of, of species diversity is, is massive. Because you think that might be every single course they have, maybe you lose nine species. What are you at after 40 years of taking a course of antibiotics every year or two, which a lot yeah. of people do. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. So last tip then, because invariably, pretty much everyone listening will have a look at the last five years of their life and go, oh yeah, I had antibiotics at least once in that time. Your favorite way to rehab after a course of antibiotics? Yeah, good question. Um, and I'll certainly give some practical tips. The sad thing is, is we'll never fix that nine species that are gone. Mm. They're gone. But what we can do is help the surviving you know, beneficial microbes come come roaring back as fast as, as possible and this is where i think prebiotics play the key role to me um yeah. you, you give a competitive advantage to the beneficial microbes in that very altered ecosystem you know because the whole dynamics have been changed there's more space 
Um, there's weird, weird bugs like work foci <laughs> takes over the territory. <laughs> so what we want to do is want to find a potential selective fertilizer that just feeds up the bugs that we really want there mm. and help them regrow more quickly than the competition. And this yeah. is where prebiotics like um, inulin, oligofructose, lactulose, uh, partially hydrolyzed guar gum, galacto-oligosaccharides are pretty key, well-researched um, prebiotics. And they do have that selective capacity to encourage the growth of the bugs that we want to come mm-hmm. back. And to me, using ideal a combination of at least two of those prebiotics for three months afterwards is key. And we definitely want to do the right probiotic during antibiotics. Don't wait till afterwards. We know you cause yourself more damage and more side effects if you wait until afterwards. So take mm-hmm. that probiotic during the course of antibiotics, ideally not the same mouthful, but during the co-administration, try to separate it out by two hours. Yeah. Um, and certain probiotics are helpful, some aren't. And I'd say that the, in terms of the best research probiotic for antibiotic-associated issues would be Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, which mm-hmm. widely available in a few different supplements on the Australian market and even the brand of yogurt, which makes it easy to get access to. The brand is called Valia, and I've got no affiliation whatsoever with them, but it is a, one of those medicinal yogurts that I mentioned at the beginning of the, the class our course or discussion, sorry. Mm-hmm. And uh, the number of supplements contain that strain too, but that you would do during and then for, I'd say six weeks afterwards, but it's the prebiotics for the three months afterwards. And then choosing really wisely with your diet of going, okay, what microbes am I feeding with what I'm eating? Yeah. And making sure you're making your food decisions to feed up the species you want to come back. More yeah. Likely. Well, I'm opening my tin of black beans that's in the cupboard after this conversation, having yeah. a cheeky teaspoon. Why not? <laughs> Um, and for the um, antibiotic rehab, what kind of quantities are we talking about of those that wonderful list that you gave? Is it uh, a teaspoon of... Um... Yeah, so this is where you might tweak it around depending on people's sense, gut sensitivity. Ah, so it comes back to that nerve. It can, and we know that about where they're, they're at. worsen that nerve inflammation, mm-hmm. and they can cause irritable bowel syndrome in mice by giving them antibiotics because it mm-hmm. causes that visceral hybrid sensitivity. So that's something that I think we all seem to be flagged. And this is something that I've actually changed and added to my antibiotic pro- uh, approach now is actually giving an anti-inflammatory like turmeric um, alongside and afterwards to decrease oh, okay. inflammation that, that otherwise is caused by that course of antibiotics mm-hmm. um, in the colon too. So yeah. that's a addition. But going back to the prebiotic question, a minimum therapeutic dose of inulin or oligofructose is one teaspoon a day. Mm-hmm. Minimum therapeutic dose of lactulose, one teaspoon a day. Minimum therapeutic dose of partially hydrolyzed guar gum. It sounds scary. It's not. It's an absolutely fantastic fiber that feeds your B-trait producing bacteria. I know. I've got a jar in my cupboard. Wonderful. I'm so <laughs> thankful to hear that. It's very good to hear that. Uh, one Australian tablespoon, so 20 mil sort of scoop. And galactolicosaccharides also sort of one heat teaspoon. Mm-hmm. That would be the minimum therapy dose. And there'll be times where I go above that, but that gives you an idea of, of where it can sort of, you can aim at. And you'll get most of the prebiotics is a dose-dependent response, that higher doses, essentially like adding extra fertilizer, you get more growth of, of the beneficial microbes. Yeah, Because uh, they can re- regrow relatively quickly as long as there's some survivors. And as mm-hmm. long as we feed them selectively, we can get some pretty quick regrowth, which is good. Fantastic. Thank you for that 
extra tangent. Very helpful. Jason, always a pleasure. Uh, I feel like in another year's time, we're going to have more good stuff to talk about. So I'm definitely not saying this is our last conversation, but I really appreciate your time keeping us up to date on all things microbiome and lending your expertise. It's always so generous and the community loves you. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to chat with you as always, Alex, and I'll be happy to come back. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action Uh, and uh, there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit uh, stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written over the past nine years of writing a blog. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added and I can't wait to see where that community takes us. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus uh, Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Today